Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we plunge into today's headlines, here's a juicy scoop for you. How deadly was China's COVID-19 pandemic? We're all aware of Beijing's suppression of virus origin data, but hidden details are still lurking in the shadows. Our exclusive report dives deep to reveal the untold part of the story, and the truth is shocking. Mark your calendars for next Wednesday, September 13th, as we uncover the unsettling reality surrounding China's secret COVID-19 death toll here on China in Focus. Beijing is facing its worst COVID outbreak. Around 250 million people were infected during the first weeks of December. China had reported only 37 deaths caused by COVID-19. We urge China to be fully transparent about what's going on. We do know that we don't know the cases right now. The BBC has found evidence of a considerable COVID death toll in China's rural areas. If you visit local crematoriums, there's a lot of people have died. WHO still believes that uh, deaths are heavily underreported from China. The regime's prestige is based upon this idea that they are really good managers of of everything that's going on in the country. And if if, uh, the COVID numbers are not supporting that, well, one way to address that problem is to eliminate the COVID numbers, right? Within eight days, I lost five close relatives. The information that we got at the front end of this thing uh, wasn't perfect and has led us now to a place where much of the challenge we face today... It's very important uh, for us to be on the same page. That is what China has not allowed to happen. If you cannot get real data from China, all your estimations will be way off. My close relatives, among them, there are four died already. That is from one family. We calculated how long each furnace burns, and then we came back to make an overall estimate, which is around 380 million. two-way street getting lined up alongside talks of a U.S. and China decoupling. China started decoupling. Industries, finances, banks, they've recently delisted their some of their largest stocks off the New York Stock Exchange. From a new counterintelligence law to policies targeting foreign firms through fines and raids, how determined is China to become self-sufficient from the West? China's driving decoupling from China Uh, as much as anybody in the world. But as China separates itself from the West, can Beijing keep its economy stable? You have to look at decoupling as a very serious thing. So is it going to get down to the good guys uh, versus the bad guys? And what would the entangling really cost? A 20-year history of trade is on the rocks as Washington and Beijing face off amid calls and concerns to decouple. Now, two of China's latest moves are making waves. One of them sent Apple's shares tumbling, dropping more than 5% Thursday morning. It happened after news outlets reported that the Chinese Communist Party is partially banning the iPhone in China, meaning staff members of Chinese state agencies will be barred from using the devices for work. Sources told us the order had quietly been in play in certain regions, but now is taking effect nationwide. Even workers in some state-owned companies have gotten the notice. As an alternative, Beijing is pushing staffers to use phones made by Chinese tech giant Huawei. 
It's led some workers to keep two phones, an Apple iPhone for private use and a Huawei phone for work purposes. China is one of iPhone's biggest markets, counting for almost one-fifth of its revenue. But Apple isn't alone on China's chopping block this week. An internal notice from the city of Wuhan is putting electric car maker Tesla in the spotlight. The city's security department reportedly told local railway authorities to block Tesla cars from entering train maintenance areas. The order also extends that rule to all wholly foreign-owned companies, citing security concerns. It's set to take effect Friday. What's the most effective way for one country to punish another? One method is through changing its laws. And news from China is hinting at just that. Beijing is getting a new power, the ability to seize the assets of foreign states inside China. That's after passing a new law last Friday. Called the Foreign State Immunity Law, it brings on a major change. If foreign governments seize or freeze Chinese assets on their soil, China can take the same action in China, including in Hong Kong. State mouthpiece Xinhua News Agency said China has the right to take necessary countermeasures. Analysts say the new law would contribute to tit-for-tat diplomacy. The rule takes effect next year. Though foreign diplomatic missions and foreign heads of state or ministers would have immunity from it. Experts bring up another concern. Chinese leader Xi Jinping thinks he has the power to affect world events. So if the U.S. has such a law, then the Chinese Communist Party would follow suit. Actually, Xi wants to show that he has the power to affect and control the world and make foreign governments become defendants on Chinese soil. Warning the law would also allow foreign companies to sue the U.S. on Chinese soil. Another law revision is also on Beijing's books this year, and it's a big one. The Chinese regime amended its anti-espionage law earlier this year, awarding authorities with much broader powers to hunt down foreign spy activities. Under it, Chinese authorities can search, raid, issue exit bans, or even imprison anyone they believe to be a spy. Whenever the so-called espionage issue is involved, there is no need to follow procedures, no need to conduct public hearings, and there is no way for the outside world to understand such cases. China's judicial process faces heavy critique from overseas. Washington says it lacks fairness and transparency. While China's state security ministry is urging civilians to join the state's anti-spying network. Citizens are now tasked with reporting suspicious activities, including foreign partners, classmates or neighbors, in exchange for rewards. Because of the law and possible punishments, the U.S. government has warned Americans to reconsider traveling to China. Along the same line, U.S. firms are in similar crosshairs. This year, three American consultant firms got raided by Chinese law enforcement on grounds linked to national security concerns. China bans the transfer of any information that it believes threatens the country's national security. Due diligence firm Mintz was one of those raided. Its business operations involve probing the backgrounds of new hires and gathering information for business partners. The firm says its operations in China are legal. In March, Chinese authorities raided its Beijing office without legal notice and detained employees. Later, Beijing slapped the firm with $1.5 million in fines. Soon after, firms Capvision and Bain & Company also got raided, also on national security grounds. Separations and restrictions on technology trade. That's the latest in the U.S.-Beijing debate over intellectual property theft. Here's what's happening. 
President Biden came out with a new executive order in August. The ban limits China's access to American investments and know-how to stop them from helping advance China's military. That's by targeting investments in semiconductors, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence, areas critical for a country's military capabilities. That's as U.S. companies have invested billions into China over the years, helping to vault China into one of the world's most advanced tech sectors. The ban is set to go into effect next year. China has been siphoning U.S. intellectual property for over a decade. The estimated loss falls between $200 billion to $600 billion every year. That's $4,000 to $6,000 per year per American family of, uh, per an American family of four by the FBI's own estimate. Put simply, you are being robbed every day in plain sight by the Chinese Communist Party. Among the IP lifted by China, sensitive personal information on 150 million Americans, Google and Adobe's valuable source codes, and personnel files on over 4 million U.S. government employees. The Trump administration started addressing the issue by launching the China Initiative, targeting theft through trade, investments, and higher education. U.S. officials and business leaders say decoupling from China would be a big mistake. All the while, companies seem to be pulling away from the country, and investors are taking their money elsewhere. Here's a look at the word from Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told a House committee in June that halting trade with China would be disastrous, going on to say de-risk, yes, decouple, absolutely not. Leaders from the G7, some of the globe's most powerful economies, released a similar statement in May. While Fidelity CEO Ann Richards described the prospect as catastrophic for the global economy early this year. But companies don't seem to have gotten the memo. U.S. financial management giant BlackRock announced plans to shut down a China investment fund later this year. Big names in American manufacturing are shifting production elsewhere with Apple moving a chunk of its iPhone production to India. And automaker Mazda bringing some of its parts making back to Japan. Other Western companies are doing the same. Taiwan microchip maker TSMC appears focused on expanding in its native Taiwan and breaking ground on a new plant in Arizona. So why are they running for the hills? We're seeing them decoupled from China because they're realizing that the CCP has already been decoupling and they, our companies want to decouple on our terms instead of the CCP's terms. Three years of stringent lockdowns brought the Chinese economy to a screeching halt, and the market has struggled to recover since China's post-pandemic reopening. What's more, raids on the China-based offices of Western firms, plus a newly amended anti-espionage law from Beijing, have worsened an increasingly hostile foreign business environment, creating a trend that right now shows no signs of slowing. A new disclosure on the alleged Chinese hacking of U.S. officials' emails. Microsoft says the notorious breach happened after hackers stole sensitive data from one of the company's engineers. Here's the story. That gave them access to a cryptographic key that was later used to break into U.S. officials' email accounts. The cyber espionage campaign caused a furor in Washington when it was uncovered this summer. Microsoft has been under scrutiny from U.S. lawmakers and officials who have demanded more information on how the hackers broke into the email accounts. The company says it's corrected the issue that led to the breach. 
China's Premier Li Qiang is calling on its Asian neighbors to avoid a new Cold War. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, is holding its 2023 summit in Indonesia this week. But just a week ago, China released a new map claiming almost 90 percent of the South China Sea as its own, angering its neighbors. They also claim parts of the sea as their territory. Some of the controversial area is located around a thousand miles from China, but only a few dozen miles away from its neighbors. Taiwan is also taking issue. The entire land mass is painted as Chinese territory in the new map. But this self-governed island has never been ruled by the Chinese communist regime and staunchly denies Chinese rule. The South China Sea dispute is a long-running one. Back in 2016, an international court invalidated China's claim. But China's 2023 map claims even a larger chunk of territory than the original. Back to the summit, Indonesia's president is calling on Beijing. We need to take this relationship into account by realizing concrete cooperation that is beneficial for both, where this can only be done with trust in each other, which has to be built and kept by all parties. Despite the map dispute, China is the body's biggest economic partner. Trade between ASEAN nations and China exceeded $975 billion last year, and their exports to China occupy almost half of that figure. Beijing said it wanted to expand trade with the other ASEAN countries, but the map dispute is getting in the way. The Biden administration lashed out at Beijing over the map controversy and what it called the false maritime claims. U.S. Vice President Harris attended the meeting for President Biden and announced the first-ever U.S. ASEAN Center to be established in Washington, D.C. Another big story to look out for on banners in the streets and through the cyberspace. People in China are speaking out. For a regime constantly flaunting its over 90% approval rate, what does dissent really look like in China? From angry flood victims smashing the walls of state buildings to a seven-year high in Chinese factory strikes, plus faith versus police, a standoff between residents and the police in a Chinese Muslim town. What does the apparent unrest signify for China's future? Stay tuned for more coming up tomorrow on China in Focus. But coming up today, a battle for influence. This weekend's G20 summit in New Delhi sees a gathering of world leaders in an increasingly divided global landscape. What's up for discussion? Plus, China is sending another delegation to North Korea, adding to the intrigue surrounding its leader's potential visit to Russia. How should the U.S. navigate the dynamics? We sat down with Bradley Thayer, director of China policy at the Center for Security Policy for details. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. What's on the agenda for world leaders during this weekend's G20 summit? And what led to Chinese leader Xi Jinping's decision not to attend? Plus, Beijing is sending another delegation to North Korea. The news comes amid reports that Kim Jong-un is preparing to visit Russia. How should the U.S. counter China in today's divided geopolitical landscape?
We speak to Bradley Thayer, Director of China Policy at the Center for Security Policy, for more. Bradley Thayer, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's my pleasure to join you again. President Biden is headed for India for the G20 summit. Xi Jinping will not be there, and Putin is also skipping this. What do you make of their absence? Well, a very important signal both are sending uh, that uh, Xi Jinping has established BRICS really as his mechanism and as his alternative in the world that he's trying to create. It's a major snub to the hosts, India, that uh, Putin and uh, Xi are not coming uh, to uh, the New Delhi uh, meeting. Uh, and so that's very important. But it also allows um, the United States to work more, more closely with its partner, India, uh, against uh, China's uh, malevolent activity uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, and elsewhere. So it, um, not having those, if you will, bad actors at the uh, G20 uh, might uh, also allow a very important signal to be sent uh, that uh, the world that Beijing is attempting to create is not one that most of the rest of the world want to join. President Biden has said he's disappointed he won't be meeting with Xi Jinping. Where do you see U.S.-China ties going from here? There are deeper causes of why the relationship uh, is a Cold War, and that Cold War is going to uh, intensify. So uh, given the fact that the Biden administration has sent so many of its representatives to Beijing recently, that allows us to establish a separation between the world of the, the G20, uh, which is longer lived, I think, and is a far more optimistic uh, world uh, of uh, greater economic interdependence and freedom than the world that Xi Jinping himself is attempting uh, to create. And reports are noting as for topics of the G20, climate and Ukraine, but what's at stake coming out of this G20 meeting? This is very important for Biden to meet with Modi to show uh, as well as Australian leaders, Japanese leaders, that the Quad, the re relationship between Tokyo, uh, Canberra, New Delhi, and Washington is strong, it's vibrant, uh, and it serves as a, a powerful check uh, in conjunction with other partners and allies in the region uh, to uh, uh, China's aggressiveness. And it seems recently India was successful in landing a spacecraft on the dark side of the moon, if you will, the South Pole. They're hosting this G20 summit. They actually changed the name. With all of these different movements, do you see India kind of becoming a bigger geopolitical player on the world stage? It certainly is. It's increasing wealth. It's increasing influence uh, in international politics. All demonstrate that it, as the world's largest democracy, it has an increasingly role to play uh, in international politics. And by and large, that dovetails with the interests of the United States, because both New Delhi and Washington, of course, are working together with allies and partners to check um, China's uh, aggressiveness. So India is a very important technological leader, scientific leader, uh, as you notice. And, and of course, uh, to build on the uh, the launch to the, the moon, they've also sent a, a, a um, essentially a, they're running a test to, to the sun as well. They're going to send a, a essentially a, a vehicle to uh, the sun as well. So India is a very increasingly a vibrant uh, and uh, important technological leader and partner of uh, the United States. So that relationship is going to warm as the relationship with Beijing cools.
So it seems China is sending another delegation to North Korea. That's as reports come that North Korea's leader could potentially meet with Putin. So what is their message to the U.S. here? Well, the message uh, that we are concerned, James Fennell, my co-author, and I are concerned is that um, North Korea may attempt to generate a crisis on the Korean peninsula, uh, which would mean the United States would face the war uh, that Russia is fighting in Ukraine. Then secondly, there would be a crisis perhaps on the Korean peninsula started by Kim at the instigation of China, Xi Jinping and Putin. Uh, that would mask uh, China's preparations for war or uh, an attack against Taiwan. Uh, so our concern is that events might be very tightly interlinked and that Kim might be used as a tool, uh, as his grandfather was used by Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin, uh, against uh, the United States and its interests uh, in, um, uh, in East Asia. And it seems historically Russia and North Korea are not very close, maybe with China more so, but now it seems they're almost all joining forces together. Does the U.S. have a backup plan here? Well, it's a a difficult situation to be sure uh, that uh, Russia is seeking overtly uh, armament uh, from North Korea to help it with its war uh, in Ukraine. But there are many things happening sub rosa, certainly below the surface uh, of those meetings. Uh, And that might be other technology transfer from Russia to North Korea. It's often been talked about nuclear submarines that North Korea would seek from uh, Russia. But also the diplomatic, uh, if you will, concert, which is developing between Moscow, Pyongyang, and and, uh, Beijing. And then, of course, the fear is, as uh, as I express, that uh, North Korea may try something against uh, South Korea, Japan, conceivably, or the U.S. or all three, as a way of distracting U.S. the attention of the United States, Japan, and South Korea, that would give China a free hand to act against the Philippines, perhaps at Second Thomas Shoal, uh, given the crisis which is developing there or against uh, Taiwan, or conceivably in other areas as well. Bradley Thayer, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.